1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more, that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. In 1 Corinthians 12, we have looked at the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts given to the church of the Lord Jesus because Jesus is reigning from on high, sitting at the right hand of the Father, dispensing gifts to men for the purpose of building up his body for its edification. We have looked at chapter 13 at the superiority of love, that love is greater than all the spiritual gifts. And we have looked at uh, the multiple faces of love and how important that is of how we must carry out those gifts of the Spirit in a spirit of love. And in chapter 13, we have learned last week that the perfect is the Word of God completed and that Certain miraculous gifts, be it prophecy, tongues, and gifts of knowledge, are partial revelations of God, and they served a purpose until the perfect came and did away with that, made it no longer necessary. In chapter 14 that we have now come to, we're going to be taking a look at prophecy particularly, uh, the nature of tongues, what tongues were or are, and the regulations for public worship. Worship. All of that is found in chapter 14. Chapter 14 in the visible church is a favorite chapter among charismatics today. But is it, or should it be, a favorite chapter is the question. And we're going to delve into what is the nature of prophecy Just what is tongues? And we do need to recognize and understand the scripture at the time it was given and when the Apostle Paul wrote Corinthians. The gifts of prophecy and of tongues and of knowledge were still operational because the apostles were still in the process of being inspired by God and the canon of scripture That law of faith and practice was not yet complete. So the gift of prophecy in tongues was operational in the Corinthian church. But we need to understand it in that framework. But, of course, there are those among us, well-meaning, who think that they are still operational today. And we're going to address that issue. Now, one of the things that we need to understand Here is that in chapter 14, the way it begins, having discussed the nature of the gifts in chapter 12 and the superiority of love in chapter 13, he still nonetheless begins, pursue love, yet earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. This is a command. 
It's an on, a continual command. He says, continually pursue love and continually earnestly seek after the greater gifts. Now, he's not talking to people just individually here. He's talking to the church. That's brought out by the grammar of the text. He's speaking to the body. He says, you, the church at Corinth, pursue love, seek the greater gifts. And he's going to define the greater gifts. Now, we need to understand that the love, that love and gifts go together. Again, what is the purpose of the spiritual gifts? We are told in 1 Corinthians 12. The purpose of the gifts, and in Ephesians 4 tells us, it is for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. That's why the gifts are given. That we need each other. He gives gifts for the purpose of the body to grow into a mature person. Until they attain to the unity of the faith. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us. And in the exercise of those gifts, there must be love. We must manifest the multiple faces of love in the exercises of those gifts. So the apostle commands the Corinthians. You have two commands. Pursue love, which is the greatest of all, and seek the greater spiritual gifts. And he says the greater spiritual gifts are prophecy above tongues unless you have an interpreter. Now, we're going to take a look uh, over the next several weeks at chapter 14 and going to be making comments on how to best understand this portion of Scripture. And needless to say, it is a controversial section of Scripture, uh, only controversial because there are those who believe that these gifts are still functional today, while others say, no, they're not. And we're going to take a look at the arguments of both and to see what does the Word of God say. So, in discussing this chapter 14, one of the things that I will do is to bring out what I believe to be the most faithful rendering of the text and some of the common deficiencies, if I may say, of the charismatic movement as we understand it. But let me just say this at the outset. When I make any comments with reference, for example, to the charismatic movement, I'm addressing the issue of the movement, not necessarily the persons involved in that movement. Because there are many well-meaning, godly persons within that framework whom I disagree with in their understanding of Scripture. One of the most precious people that I know on this earth who I have not spent a whole lot of time with, but over the years we differed on this, but that's not what we even talked about. I'm speaking about a relative who would be charismatic in an understanding of this passage, but is one of the most godly persons I've ever known to whom I dedicated my last book to. A precious saint of the Lord. So what we have concentrated on is what we have in common, which we both love Jesus. And that's what we have emphasized. Nonetheless, we have to be faithful to what the Scripture teaches. And because it is important where we come down on this. 
And the, the spiritual gifts, our understanding of these spiritual gifts are very important. But they can, we can be led astray, and the ramifications, if we don't get it right, are immense. And let me tell you about this. It's hard to imagine it's been this long, 39 years ago. When I was in college, I was a very young Christian. Very impressionable, spent time for a week with this precious saint who had a view of 1 Corinthians 14 and of tongue speaking. I was very impressionable at the time, didn't know what the scripture had to say. Uh, For sure, I read these scriptures and had no idea what in the world is meant by them. And I can remember being there, and uh, a dear relative says, well, tonight they're having John a special uh, session for the young people that we encourage you to go to. So I went. And out of about six, it was was a, uh, the youth group, I guess, of the church of about two or three hundred people at least. And all of a sudden commenced everyone speaking in tongues of about 300 people except one person, not me. And I thought, what is going on? I remember going off to pray. I said, Lord, is this something I need to understand? Am I missing something? If so, I, want to, I don't want to miss out on something important, so help me out. At the same time in my life, dealing with... Uh, gifts of knowing the will of the Lord. I had become convinced that I understood God's will in a matter. And when it did not come to pass like I thought, I knew for certain, because God had spoken to me and given me a word of knowledge that it was something that was going to take place. And when it didn't happen, still after 39 years, It was the worst time I have ever gone through in my life. The worst time. Because when God didn't answer me the way, after all, God spoke to me, surely it's got to be true. So what happened? What went wrong? And you talk about wrestling with the Scriptures. And I was still, uh, so confused as to how to understand the will of God. At one point, I just wanted to go up in the mountains and just die. It was so bad. But praise God that he didn't answer my prayer the way that I wanted because I was really confused to how to determine the will of God. It, so this, these issues that I'm talking about, they really do matter. <laughs> they do impact your life. I can testify to that as to whether they impact your life or not. And the question is, it's not, it's a matter of what does the Word of God clearly say, not what I want it to say, not what I believe, but what does the Word of God really say. And that's what we have to wrestle with. So we're going to be discussing in chapter 14 the nature of prophecy, the nature of tongues, just 
What were these gifts, and are they still functional? And if not, why are they not functional according to the Bible? Now, we do need to keep in mind that in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, it did say that love never fails, but if there were gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. Tongues will cease, and if there's knowledge, it will be done away with. They will cease when the perfect comes, whenever the perfect comes, and we addressed that last week, as you recall. And it's vital to understand, again, the historical context of 1 Corinthians 14, because it was still in the apostolic period. The New Testament was still being formed. Some of the epistles have not yet been uh, inspired. So we need to understand that section in its historical setting, lest we go astray. One of the uh, people that I read in preparation for this message had been involved, for example, in, in the charismatic movement for 27 years. And the Lord had led him out of it when he realized it just wasn't the best understanding of Scripture. And others who were critical of him said this, and they said to this man, this pastor, he said, Your problem is that you worship the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. Now notice, it's an attempt to leave out Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what they meant was that you're no longer emphasizing the Spirit but you're emphasizing the Scriptures. Now, no one worships the Bible as such. We do worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it is important that we understand how the Spirit works. And in this regard, is the Spirit somehow leading me to do something? And it's not an uncommon fact when people will say, well, I need to pray about such and such, and see what the Spirit tells me. Well, brethren, let me tell you this. There's no use praying to God concerning something that God has told you otherwise. Now, what does the Scripture say? Jesus said in John sixteen thirteen to his disciples, he says, I'm going to leave you, but when I leave you, I'm going to send you the Comforter. And he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And in John 16, 13, he says, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you to all truth. And Jesus says, he will not speak about himself, but he will disclose what I have told you. He will glorify me. And then in the next chapter, in John 17, 17, Jesus is saying, when he's praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. So when I say there's no use to pray about something when God has clearly told you otherwise, it means this. It's whatever God's Word is. What I need to do and what you need to do is, in our prayer life, we need to match up our prayers with the Word of God. That's what we need to do. And 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, God gives those exactly what they pray for if they pray in His will. 
but you have to know his will. And where do we know God's will? This is where we know God's will. It's in the scriptures and only in the scriptures. And so that, that experience I told you about in my own life, it wasn't the word of God that was guiding me. It was my own personal preference. That's all it was. And I was led astray, and I was greatly disappointed because my personal preference wasn't met. But I had no right to pray that way because it wasn't, I wasn't sanctioned to pray that particularly. But if you look at our text here in verse 2, we're going to see that verse 2 is key here. And because it says, Paul says, earnestly desire the greater gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So, in other words, he's saying that prophecy is the greater gift that you should desire as a church. The you is the church. As a church, you need to have prophecy, he's saying to Corinth. You need to have the word of God. You need to have a revelation from God. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Now, we're going to break that down and understand what is being said here, because it's important to understand each facet here of this passage. Some think that what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 is two types of tongues. For example, uh, tongues that are a language, and then some believe there's a, an additional type of tongues, meaning a heavenly language, a private Worship communion with God. So the, the question is, are there two types of tongues? Is there a private use of tongues for uh, private worship and for church worship? Or not? We're going to see that really a faithful rendering of the text is there, the Bible really doesn't teach two types of tongues. Tongues have always been the same. And they are languages, as we're going to demonstrate. But prophecy is a greater gift than tongues. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why is prophecy greater than tongues in itself without an interpreter? And Paul explains this in verse 3, if you notice. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Prophecy is designed to edify the body of Christ. And the goal of prophecy is to understand, is to help people understand the mysteries of God. So the one who has the gift of prophecy is engaged in revealing mysteries, the mysteries of God. And we're going to look at today just what are these mysteries of God that a prophet and the one who had the gift of prophecy were revealing. Now, as we said, men, in verses 2 and 3, this section demands very careful attention. And so that we will understand just what is prophecy and what is tongues. Now, herein lies the difference between tongue speaking and prophecy. The apostle says here in verse 2, that those engaged in tongue speaking edify themselves and they speak to God. 
However, it says prophecy, as verse 3 informs us, prophecy, in contrast, just the tongues, seeks the edification, exhortation, and consolation. I hope you see what the emphasis here is. The one engaged in the tongue speaking, as we're going to see, is having a relationship speaking to God, but the prophet is speaking not only to God, but to the congregation. And Paul says, it's better to have a prophet among you than tongues just in and of itself, unless you have an interpreter. So the goal of prophecy is for the congregation of the Lord's people to understand the mysteries of God. But we're going to see that as verse 5 tells us, that when you have a prophecy, when you have tongue speaking along with an interpreter, then it is equivalent to prophecy. If you have an interpreter. And we're going to see that prophecy and tongues are revealing the same thing, the revelation of God. Hence, all focusing then is on our understanding of this and who it is that is understanding the word of God. Is it just me understanding something or is it something that I understand that I can pass off to you as well? I guess to give you an understanding of tongue speaking and the importance of tongue speaking and how it manifested itself in the New Testament era and the importance of an interpreter, I'm going to have to demonstrate it for you. And for those listening on Sermon Audio, this is a disclaimer. This is an object lesson. This is for a professional not to be done at home. (laughs) You ready? Welcome day, Yeshu. Yeye na pike ya wakavu. Tubani tamadizinu na imana na naka yaka. Na yitaki wa na mesha ya ya melele. Hamala wewe na wizi lala ala sima. Kuna abana kana me wewe. Anybody ready to interpret that? Does anyone in here know Swahili? Because I just spoke in tongues. I just spoke in Swahili. Unless there was an interpreter. Now, I was edified. Personally, I spoke to God. I'm putting myself, if I had been in the New Testament era, and I had spoke this tongue in Swahili, I'm going to tell you why I was edified and why I spoke to God. But unless you know Swahili, unless someone among you can speak, can interpret that Swahili, you weren't edified. Now, what did I actually say? Welcome, Wandiya Yesu. Come to Jesus. Yeye Nanija Pite Yah, He is the only way of salvation. Now, Nimbus and New, repent of your sins. Now, you talk, you are Namisha Yah Malele. And you will have eternal life. Yamalewewe, don't you understand? Now, was he kea asima? It's obvious what I said. Kuna yubayakana na wewe? What is wrong with you? Now, that 
is what happened in the New Testament era. Someone who had the gift of tongues that if I had been in that period and I had not ever studied Swahili and there had been someone that was from that African uh, nation present and I spoke in their dialect, they heard that, they would have understood and they just heard the gospel of the necessity of coming to Jesus, the only one who can give you salvation. Repent of your sins and have faith in him. And if there, if without that interpretation, you would not have been blessed. That, that, that was a blessing. Now, I spoke to God and praised to God for who Jesus is. But unless someone interpreted that to you, you would not have known that, would not have profited from that. But if someone knew Swahili, they could have interpreted that and so that you would have been had a blessing. Now, that is how tongues operated in apostolic times. And so, <clears throat> prophecy is a greater gift. But, <clears throat> because of what reason? Because people are edified. They understand what is being said. And so, if there is a tongue speaking, it, Paul says, I wish that all of you would speak in tongues, but that rather that you prophesy. What my goal is that the body be edified. And if you have an interpreter, then the body can be edified. And that's why tongue speaking with an interpretation was equivalent to prophecy. Now, I've got to address what it says here. For example, in verse 3, it says, verse 2, For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. We need to concentrate on what does it mean when it says in his spirit, and then we need to take a look at what is what are these mysteries that he's referring to. Now sometimes people that are engaged in the movement today want to to think that somehow there is a praying in the Spirit that is distinct from what you understand with your mind. But that's not what this text is saying, as we're going to see. The, for, for example, take a look at verse 14. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, just on the, on the surface, one might think, well, that sort of proves their point. I pray in the Spirit somehow, for example, with this heavenly tongue, but my mind is just completely disengaged. But is that what the text says? And we're going to see, no, that is not what the text says. The idea that personal tongue speaking bypasses mental understanding of the soul is not accurate. Now, the basis for why some think that is whether you are a trichotomist or a dichotomist, meaning do you believe that there, that man's composition is body, soul, and spirit? That's a trichotomist. Or a dichotomist is body and soul, or body, soul, slash spirit. Now, <clears throat> what I believe to be the best understanding of the passage 
And what is more faithful to the overall teaching of Scripture is a dichotomous view, meaning that the immaterial part of a man's being is his soul or slash spirit, meaning they're identical, essentially. Now, I want us to take a look at some text that, that shows how these terms are interchangeable, all right? Now, again, why are we looking at this? We're looking at it as to whether it's possible to be praying in the Spirit in some heavenly language that no one, not even I know what it means, and then having my mind engaged. All right, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The souls of those who had been beheaded. I turn over to 1 Peter 3.19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So the idea here is, in one text, he uses the word soul, referring to that immaterial part of man, and in this text, he uses the word spirit. Now, they're two different words, but are they implying the same thing? And to see how the term body and soul is used in one text, turn with me to Matthew 10, look at verse 28. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus here is talking about what is the nature of men made in the image of God. We have a body, and we have a soul. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and look at verses 3 and verse 5. So we have Jesus saying, body and soul. What does inspired Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 3? For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you're assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. For the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of Lord Jesus. Now, is that anything different than what Jesus said? No. Man is body, soul, or you could say body, spirit, either one. But then if you study the scripture enough, you might say, but what about Hebrews 4.12? So let's turn to Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. Some would say, well, it mentions body, soul, and spirit there, so it's got to be a trichotomous view. 
Well, <clears throat> the thing about it is, it can all boil down to whether that conjunction and is trying to set apart something or simply saying, like in the rest of the text, to say something that penetrates to the soul and to the spirit is like saying it penetrates to the thoughts and intentions of the heart, meaning that basically the same thing, the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the soul and the spirit. If you turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. There you see spirit and soul are listed uh, separate words, but is it intended to reveal some aspect of man in addition to his soul? So what you have to do, here's what you have to do. It's like our confession of faith says. You take the less clear portions of Scripture and interpret them by the more clear and by the more abundant use. And so when you put it all together, the evidence in Scripture is that man is a body-soul or man a body-spirit. And not three parts. Not three parts to the point where you can be engaged in one with your mind completely unengaged. That is what we're not going to advocate. No, we have our mind engaged at all times. Now, let's be clear here. So we say body and soul, or spirit. In the Christian, you do have three entities. We have a body, and we have our soul and spirit. And if you're a Christian, you also have the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is separate. It is God, the Lord Jesus, in us by his spirit. But with reference to man himself, he is a body, soul, slash spirit. You received your soul, slash spirit, from God. And when you die, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, your soul, spirit, goes to the place where it's going to have its eternal destiny. So we're not talking about the soul and spirit being two separate things. Now, in relationship to the importance of tongues being interpreted, as Paul says, prophecy is a greater gift unless you have someone with tongues can interpret the gift, the tongues, then it amounts to prophecy. By the way, the reformers in the Protestant Reformation were adamantly opposed to services in Latin, such as in Roman Catholicism. And why were they opposed to that? Because the people were not edified if they didn't know Latin. How are you going to be benefited? In fact, most people, the common man, did not know Latin. And the great advantage of the Reformation is that it brought the Bible to the vulgar language, the vulgar meaning common language. The importance of the, interp- of the writing of Scripture in the language that the people could understand. And so they did not want to have any kind of worship service where the people could not be edified in their language. Which led the way, of course, with your Tyndalls and your Wycliffs in making uh, translations available in the common language. Well, let's uh, turn back to 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to jump ahead for a moment to verse 14. 
and deal with this because it is a vital section in this whole chapter. Again, charismatics often insist that there is a distinguishing between praying in the Spirit with a heavenly tongue and the person's mind being completely unfruitful. Meaning, I have no idea what I'm praying. Because usually that interpretation is, this heavenly language is, you just don't know what it is, but you pray in it anyway. And somehow, you're edified by that. But this is not what, the idea that I can pray without understanding what I'm praying, and praying in a spirit that that I don't even know, is not what the context tells us. Again, context, context, context. The context stresses the importance of the edification of the body of Christ. Now, the text didn't say that the prayer's mind was disengaged. It didn't say that their mind was disengaged. When we pray, when, when you pray, you know what you prayed for. But unless you tell me what you prayed for, I have no idea what you prayed for. And in our prayers, we can be personally edified. We pray to God. We pray in the Spirit to God and are personally edified. Well, I may be personally edified, but you're not unless I tell you what I prayed for. And so, if what I am praying for is not revealed to you in some way, like through interpretation of a tongue? If I'm praying in a tongue, that's what it says here. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit or my soul prays. I'm praying to God. But my mind is unfruitful. If that's all it is, I'm praying to God, there is no fruit among you. So my mind, what I prayed, is unfruitful because there is no edification. Now, that understanding of that verse can be substantiated by taking a look at what verse 15 and 16 says. Look at it. What is the outcome then? I shall pray with the Spirit, and I shall pray with the mind also. I shall sing with the Spirit, and I shall sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying? So, the prayer of my mind is not edifying to you if I pray in tongues without an interpreter. There's no fruit in the congregation then. So, we pray in the Spirit. We are personally edified. But we pray with our minds to communicate to the congregation so that they are edified. And therefore, fruit is produced. So now, having stressed this idea of the issue of body and soul, of body and spirit, let's address the nature, for example, of prophecy and tongues. Just what is it? Remember Paul said here that the greater gift is, was prophecy, unless you have someone that can interpret the tongues along with it. So what was it about prophecy and tongues that was so significant? 
And it's not the fact, for example, uh, some this uh, revelation. It all ties up in revelation. And it's not a revelation like this. Well, Billy is going to go to New York and have a good time. That is not a revelation as such. We have already seen in chapter 13 that prophecy and tongues, along with knowledge, were partial revelations when the perfect revelation came. So what we understand here then is that these mysteries, and notice it says here in verse 2, the one who understands that God, one who speaks to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Well, what are these mysteries that a prophet speaks and that what a tongue speaker spoke? What are these mysteries? It is very important that we understand Understand what the mysteries are so that you understand what tongue speaking is all about and whether it's still going on or not. Now, let's take a look here at several passages. Now, a mystery, I've already mentioned this to you before. What is a mystery in the Bible? A mystery in the Bible is something revealed to you that you would not have known anything about unless God equipped you to know it. That's what a mystery is. It's a re- it is God revealing something to you heretofore unknown unless someone told you about it, such as a prophet, an apostle. Turn with me to Matthew thirteen eleven. Now Jesus had given several parables And his disciples said, Jesus, why are you talking in parables? And here's what Jesus said, verse 11. And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. I'm going to show you the mysteries of the kingdom. To you, my disciples. But to the Pharisees, they're going to remain in darkness. But I am going to tell you a mystery that pertains to the kingdom of God. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 11 and take a look at verses 22 through 25. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. Severity, but to you God's kindness. And if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. He calls it a mystery. Lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He just told them what a mystery is. That he's cut off the natural branch for a time, the Jews, and he's grafted on a wild olive branch, the Gentiles, and that the Gentiles, this wild olive branch, is going to drive them to jealousy one day and will bring them to the Savior Jesus. 
He says this is a mystery. But I just told you the mystery. Take a look at um, Romans 9, verses 30 through 33. What is it that... Uh, Certain Jews and Gentiles understood in what uh, certain large sections of national Israel did not understand and did not have revealed to them. Here it is. Look at verses 30 to 33. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel... Pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, the mystery, brethren, is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is the mystery. And there are some who didn't understand that this cornerstone was Jesus. And the Jews, for the large part, have stumbled over Jesus. As Jesus said to them when he came to Jerusalem, he says, You did not recognize the day of your visitation. Quoting the Old Testament. You did not recognize the day of your visitation. I am the Messiah, he says, and I have come, and you have stumbled over me. Turn to Romans 16. Look at verses 25 to 26. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret from long ages past, But now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. So what is the gospel? What is the mystery? The mystery is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the cornerstone. He is the promised one. That's the mystery. Before, you didn't understand that. But who revealed it to you? The prophets revealed it to you. Those, we're going to say, who spoke in tongues revealed it to you. This mystery. Take a look at Ephesians 6, verse 19. We're going to see that this this truth is taught over and over again in the Scriptures. Ephesians 6.19 And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness, what? The mystery of the gospel. There you have it. That's what preaching is all about. That's why in Romans 10 it says the feet of the preachers are so beautiful. Because they are bringing the mystery of the gospel to bear into the world. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verses 25 to 27. 
Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to the saints, to whom God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ, in you the hope of glory. Paul says here specifically, he says, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. And I'm a steward of this mystery that has long been hidden from ages to past, from generation to generation. But this mystery has now been revealed in the gospel that I am now preaching to you. So you see, these mysteries are no ordinary thing. These mysteries are the revelation of the Word of God, particularly with emphasis upon the gospel of Christ. That the prophets and that the apostles brought to you. And then finally, turn to 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. And by common confession... Great is the mystery of godliness. He's now going to tell us what this mystery of godliness is. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That is the mystery of godliness. Jesus is the mystery revealed from ages past. The Lord of glory, the Savior of sinners, the risen Christ. This is the mystery. The prophets brought and revealed it. What was the purpose then of these these gifts? And when these spiritual gifts like prophecy in tongues, and a word of knowledge. As I've said, they were necessary in the apostolic period until the canon of Scripture, until all of God's Word had been inspired. And now you got it. Now you have the perfect. And the prophets came along, and those who spoke in tongues came along to reveal the mystery of this book. Jesus is the center, the story of the Bible. Jesus is the story of the Bible. He's the golden thread. As he said to his disciples on the road to, to, uh, to Emmaus, he says, it is written. He says, you are slow of understanding to know that in all the scriptures speak of me. You should have known that. And so the apostles and the prophets and the tongue speakers, they spoke the mystery of God, which is the revelation. They spoke the inspired word of God. What I want you to understand is, prophecy dealt with inspired scripture. Tongue speaking dealt with inspired scripture, is what it dealt with. Not a heavenly language that no one else understands, but but God alone, and no one else is edified. No. If I speak, Pray in the Spirit, 
I may know what I prayed for, and I may be edified. And the tongue speaker, like I said, if I knew Swahili, I know Swahili, I proved it to you. <clears throat> I could be edified, but unless someone interpreted Swahili for you, you wouldn't have been edified. Think about the day of Pentecost, and we'll deal with this more in weeks to come. On the day of Pentecost, they're gathered there for the Passover. And the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples. And what does the scripture say in Acts 2? We'll look at this more at another time. But it says all those people from around the Roman world had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. You had men and women from all places of the known world, which was the Roman Empire. Various dialects. And guess what happened? They heard a revelation from God to them in their own dialect. They thought they were drunk. Now we're going to see what the purpose of tongues is at another time. But what I wanted to demonstrate to you today is that Prophecy and tongue speaking both dealt with inspired revelations of God. That's one thing I want you to come away with. They both deal with inspired revelations of God. And that there, are, there is not two types of tongues. There's only one type of tongue. A known language that I didn't have the ability to know but was supernaturally given to me. Except in my case, it was not supernaturally given to me. The wonders of the internet. <clears throat> and so in the days ahead, we're going to take a look at just, again, prophecy, tongues, how the tongues were a blessing to the Gentiles, but then tongues was a sign of a curse to Israel. We're going to see that that was the purpose. Well, let us pray.